This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Thank you, Matt. Well, good morning. Good morning. Well, it's great to see you here today. If we haven't met, uh, I'm James. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of the West Pimble GC as well. You'll have to excuse my voice. I'm on the back end of a cold, but I'm feeling good this morning. I'm keen to preach. So why don't you join me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace, that your mercy is anew every morning. And so even now, Lord, we stop and we still our hearts, we quieten our minds. We believe that you are a personal God, that you speak to us through your spirit, through your word that you have given us. And so we ask, gracious Father, this morning that you would speak to us, each of us, Lord, the things that you want us to hear. Change us and transform us more and more into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus. And we ask this in his powerful and precious name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible there, uh, have it open there to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, If you are taking notes, you have a note-taking device, I'd encourage you to do so. That as I speak the word to you this morning and share a message, that you're not just to listen, but actually to engage. This is discipleship. This is your discipleship. So partner with me in this. I want to start by asking uh, if anyone remembers the first time that you ever went to the gym. The first time that you went to the gym, a couple of, a couple of grins, a couple of smirks, a couple of people looking at me like, dude, I don't go to the gym. What are you talking about? I remember signing up for my first gym membership uh, about 10 years ago. I blew out my knee playing basketball and I had to get a gym membership to do some rehab. I was already signed up, so I thought, you know what, maybe I'll just keep this membership. And so I started going with some mates from church, and uh, they came along. They were experienced gym bros, and they were going to show me what to do, how to use the various machines. And so I'm in there with them, and they're showing me how to use the lap pull down and uh, the bench press or the chest press. We're just doing machines to begin with, right, because I'm a total basic beginner, And the leg press. And I remember some of their key advice that they said to me on that day was, don't worry about the weight, man. Don't worry about the weight. Your muscles aren't going to be used to this. So just focus on the technique. Just focus on the technique. And over time, you can increase the weight. But I did what every other insecure male does when they find themselves in an environment where they feel slightly vulnerable and unfamiliar I compensated. Not many laughs there from the guys. I compensated. I jacked up the weight. Uh, In my defense, the leg press kind of felt pretty easy, pretty light. So I dropped the pin down to the next level, 10 more kilos. Still feels all right. I reckon I can do this. Drop the pin down again, another 10 kilos. This is easy. I am like so much stronger than this. Drop the pin down, another 10 kilos until I found the weight that was worthy of me. And so I finished my workout. I uh, went to get some food with my mates, and I went home. 
And the next day, I couldn't walk. <laughs> had very much challenge and difficulty walking up and down the stairs and uh, could not get up from the toilet. <laughs> See, my friends gave me some trustworthy advice, some trustworthy instruction, but I didn't listen. I thought I knew better. Despite their best intentions, in my heart, I knew that I knew better. And I wonder if you can think of a time in your life uh, when you perhaps received advice or instruction from a trustworthy person, someone who had your best intentions at heart, but you were sure that you knew better. Uh, despite their experience, despite their wisdom, you knew that, you know, that's good advice, but just let that one pass. I know what I'm truly capable of. I know the best way. Perhaps a time where you even insisted on your own way despite their cautions, despite their warnings. See, this is what we see happening in this morning's passage in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The Israelites come to Samuel and they are demanding a king. The only problem is that the time isn't right yet. God hasn't, he doesn't want to give them a king at this point in time. He has actually planned to give them a king in the future, as we'll hear in the coming weeks, but they want one right now. Despite God's cautions, despite his warnings, they're adamant that they know best. And not only that, as we'll see in the passage, their motivations are all skewed. Their motivations are all wrong. The people persist in their demands because they are adamant that they know best, that they know better than God. So read with me this narrative, and let's see how this story unfolds. 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They, they said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So to set the scene, here we are. Samuel, the prophet who has been effectively helping to rule over Israel and lead them, he's starting to get up there in age, and he recognizes there's going to be a leadership gap when he dies. And so what does he do? He appoints his two sons, Joel and Abijah, to be the leaders of Israel. But unfortunately, as noted in verse 3, I don't know if you saw it there, it says his sons didn't follow in his ways. Unlike Samuel, they are not righteous. They are not godly. Instead, it says... They turn aside, the writer says, to dishonest gain. They even accept bribes. They pervert justice. It's pretty strong language there to describe the kind of character of his sons. And so clearly Samuel's sons are not like him. They're not faithful men of God. They do not lead with justice. And so all the elders of Israel, they come together and they come to Samuel and they ask him to appoint a king for them. Because these guys aren't just, just aren't going to cut it. And on the surface, this may seem like a perfectly reasonable request. After all, what is so wrong 
with the desire to have a king. However, I want you to pay close attention to the end of verse 5 there, because we see their motivation. We see the heart of the issue here. It says there, they want to be like the other nations. See, the primary reason that Israel wants a king is not for some godly reason, it's not for some righteous reason, but because they want to be like the nations around them. And you might think, well, what's so wrong with that? Well, think back with me to the Old Testament storyline, if you're familiar with the Scriptures, and you might remember that Israel was actually chosen by God to be distinct, to be unique and and set apart. Have a look at these words from Moses to the Israelites back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Moses says this to the Israelites. So this is way back, way before the events of 1 Samuel 8. Moses says, For you are a people holy, which means set apart, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Or perhaps take these words from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, where God says to Israel, he says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. See, the context, the historical context that you need to understand, that we need to understand in this narrative is that God has specifically and uniquely called and chosen the Israelites to be holy, which means set apart, a separate people for himself, distinct. His desire is not that they conform to the nations around them, but that they actually be separate from the nations around them. Now, why did God want this? Why did God want this? Was it so the Israelites could live perhaps uh, like the Amish, completely removed and cut off from the rest of the world? No, no, but rather that through their holiness and their set-apartness, through their distinctiveness, the Israelites could be a blessing to the rest of the world. Cast your mind back to these words from God's initial call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Pay attention to these words. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And listen, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, Israel is not called to be separate and set apart and distinct purely for the sake of being different. No, Israel is called to be separate for the purpose of being a blessing to the nations around them. That in their difference, in their difference to the nations and the peoples around them who worship different gods and who have foreign rituals and customs, the Israelites might be a blessing, that people might see God, the one true God, through them. And you know, I wonder, as I, was, as I was pondering 
this perspective and this motivation of the Israelites, I was thinking to myself, I wonder in what ways we desire to be like the world around us. I wonder what things have we set our hearts on because everyone else in the world has them. And I want to be like the nations, like the world around me. I wonder in what ways have we forgotten perhaps that God has called us to be set apart. A holy people, not known for our similarities to the world, but known for our differences. Did you know that? Did you know that? That God has called and and chosen you. If you are someone who belongs to Jesus, if you call him Lord, if he is your God that you follow after, he has called you to be holy, which means set apart, distinct, and attractive to the world. Not because of everything you have in common with the world, but everything that is different. You see, holiness and being set apart was not only for God's people back then, but it's for God's people now. Listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says in verses 9 and 10, but you, and he's talking here, who's he talking to? Believers in the New Testament, people like us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, if you have done that, he says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. It's striking, isn't it, the kind of language, the kind of descriptors that Peter chooses to use here, how similar they are to some of that language that God used for his people back in the Old Testament. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, God has chosen us, Anchor Church, and set us, Anchor Church, apart so that others would look at us, so that the world would look at us and see the one who has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And how do they see that? Because of how much we look like the world? Because of how much we follow in the ways of the world? No, because of how different we are. That the world looks at us longing for answers and goes, those guys have it. They don't just have what I have, plus they go to church on a Sunday. They have something entirely different and better. And look at the love and look at the community and look at the joy. And I need that causes them to look up and see God. So what does Samuel do with the people's request for this king, their their request which is motivated by the wrong desires? Well, let's read on and see. It says there in verse 6, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the kings who will reign over them will claim as his rights. 
And so Samuel is displeased. He's dissatisfied with the people's request. And what does he do? He does the godly thing. He takes it to the Lord in prayer. And God assures him that Samuel, this demand, the people's demand for a king, in fact, is not a rejection of you. It's a rejection of me. And it's, it's not even new to me. They've been doing this from the day I brought them up out of slavery and captivity in Egypt. You might remember they grumbled in the wilderness. They complained. They said, oh, we'd be better off back in Egypt. They even made a golden calf and started worshiping it because Moses was up in the mountain too long. They were like, where you at, bro? To the Lord, this is actually idolatry this request, a rejection of him. Now, the irony here in the people's request is that they don't actually need a king. Like at this current moment in time, God, Yahweh, has essentially been functioning as their king. I mean, he's the one who's called them. He's the one who's chosen them to be his own. He's the one who's brought them up out of Egypt, freed them from slavery. He's brought them into the promised land. He's provided time and time again at every turn and every avenue, everything they've needed. He's given it to them. For all intents and purposes, Yahweh has been their king And he even intends to give them a human king later on if they would just be patient. He's going to give them a king who is trustworthy and just. You see, the people's sin here is not only in their desire to be like the nations around them, but also their rejection and forsaking of God, idolatry. But Yahweh decides to give them what they want so long as Samuel first warns them of what the consequences of their decision will be. It says there in verse 10, pay attention to this long and exhaustive list of what's going to happen if God grants them this king that they so desire. And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said this, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and others, commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. So he'll take your sons, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage, which just means wine. He's going to give that to his officials as well. Your male and female servants, they're not off limits, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He's going to take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves and when that when that day comes you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen but the lord will not answer you in that day it's a lot of stuff now if you want me to summarize it for you let me do that this is not a good deal this is not a good Deal. The king is literally going to take everything that you have. He's going to conscript your sons to serve in the military and do hard labor. He's going to conscript your daughters to be perfumers and, and cooks. 
And he's going to take the best of everything that you have, literally all your crops, the best of all your livestock, your, your olives, a tenth of your grain, a tenth of your wine, even your male and female servants and your livestock. And he summarizes in verse 17 and says, it's going to feel so all-consuming and all-demanding that you yourselves will become his slaves. In effect, because you have given over everything to him and nothing is off limits, it will be as if you were his slaves. This is heavy. It's intense. Now God's warning here shows us two things. Shows us two things. The first thing, as we're going to see in a minute, is it shows us the stubbornness of the human heart. That even after God lays out this exhaustive list of consequences for what will happen if the people get their demands, they still persist. They think they know better. And the second thing it shows us is the kindness of God. That even as the Israelites are about to make a choice that will have all of these negative ramifications, God's heart of love and intention is still to warn them before they put their foot down and force their way. See, I don't know if you've ever been giving someone advice, trying to maybe speak into someone's life and they're just not listening to you because they know better, they're very smart and experienced and aged with decades of wisdom as we all are in this church. And they don't listen, and so how, how do you respond, right? Psh, fine. Like, you go and do it, right? I'm just going to wash my hands of this. They don't want to listen. I did my thing. Whatever. And whatever happens, too bad. They're going to have to deal with it. God could have just said, you know what, stuff them. Let them figure out the consequences. Let them figure out all of the negative outcomes as they're having to deal with it firsthand. But instead, he warns them. You know, when our hearts are set on rejecting God's ways, when our hearts are set, when we are adamant to pursue our own desires because we know best, God still has the kindness and love to warn us in his word of what the negative consequences will be. I don't know if you've considered that before. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in a pit or in a place due to our own bad decisions and we cry out to God and we're like, God, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you warn me? But maybe he was trying to warn you. If you just opened up his word and you read it if you just heeded the counsel of a concerned brother or sister. See, the question isn't whether God loves us enough to warn us, but whether we will have the ears to listen and to heed his warning. But the people, verse 19, refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We've heard everything you said, but we still want a king over us then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us 
and to go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 21, when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them. Give them what they want. Give them a king. And then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone, go back to your town. All right, sermon done. This is where the passage leaves us for today. On a cliffhanger, right? Two questions burning in my mind as I'm reading this. Firstly, who is this king? Where, where, where is he going to be? I'm keen for him to be revealed, the anticipation, the unveiling. So we're waiting for this king. But the passage also leaves us asking this question. What hope is there for a people like this? What hope is there for a people who despite their being called and chosen by God to be his holy prized possession, desire to be like the nations around them? What hope is there for a people who, who make bad choices and are so stubborn and prideful that even despite the concerned warnings and cautions of a loving God who made them and wants the best for them, they still persist in their ways and in their desires. What hope is there for a people like this? What hope is there for a people like us? And I feel like, as I was thinking about this, God reminded me of a scene in the Gospels that happened over a thousand years later when God's people made another bad decision in their stubbornness and in their blindness and in their sin, calling for the crucifixion of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the true King, the one who would fulfill the line of David and the house of Judah, the one who was prophesied about, who all the Old Testament and the prophets point to, who unlike the wicked kings of the past, would rule with perfect justice and righteousness. And the people cry, crucify him, crucify him. In their blindness and ignorance and sinfulness, they demanded for his execution. They persisted in their unbelief. And yet, what did this king say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, the only hope for the human heart is the grace of God. That God would give us his best despite our stubbornness, despite our sinfulness, despite our turning away and forsaking him. The only hope for the human heart is that God would send his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins. For wayward sinners who turn away and worship idols and persist in following their worldly desires. The only hope for the sinful human heart is that God would do for humanity what we cannot do for ourselves that he, was, he would make us completely new by placing his spirit inside of us and giving us an entirely 
new heart. Replacing our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And as the band comes out and prepares to get ready, you know, I was thinking, as I was reflecting, I think there's people here this morning who, maybe you've been coming here for a while, maybe you've been associated, connected with the community for a little while, and maybe it's because you like the community, you like the people, maybe you like the values, and I need you to listen and clearly understand what all of this is about. Because what we are doing here is not behavior modification. Like when you read this passage and you see the sin and the stubbornness and the pride that pervades the human heart of the Israelites, this is not something that we can overcome by trying harder or being better or doing more good deeds or reading our Bible more or showing up to church. No, we're not here to make sinful people look slightly better by conforming to a Christian subculture of do's and don'ts. Like, just come here and say the right thing, dress the right way, you know, do the right actions and fit in. No, the message of the Bible, it's not about self-improvement. It's not about trying harder. It's not about becoming a better person. It's that each of us has utterly failed. And we fail God over and over and over again. And what we need above everything else is not a behavior management plan, but a heart transplant. That God would take our old, sinful, dying heart and replace it with an entirely new one. And the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, he can. He offers to. That's his invitation. So we're going to enter it into a time of response. And as we do that, a couple of ways I want us to respond. And the first is through sharing in the Lord's Supper. We have a station up the back over here and one down the front here, a little bit different positioning this week. And I want to invite those of you who call Jesus Lord, to come and share in the Lord's Supper as we sing and as we worship. And as you take the bread and the wine that represents Jesus' body and blood, broken and spilled for you, do so in remembrance of him, but also with thanksgiving of his grace and of the new heart that he has given you by his spirit, that he did what you couldn't do for yourself. And secondly, as we sing and respond and as we share the Lord's Supper, if there's anyone who this morning feels like maybe you're understanding this for the first time and you want to receive Christ, you want to ask God to, to give you the new heart that I've been speaking about, I'm going to be up the back over to the side there and I would love to pray for you. Because I, just, I don't want us to get this twisted. As good as the community is, as good as the people are, as good as maybe the morals or the things are that we can gain from being a part of this community, that's not what it is about. It's about a God who did for us what we couldn't do for himself. As it says in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we would be the righteousness of God.
Let me pray. Oh God, you are so good. You are so good, Lord. And after hearing maybe what is a challenging word, what is a hard word, we want to remember your, your grace and your mercy for us. That despite our stubbornness, despite our sin, despite our persistence in going our own way, you have made a way. You have made a way by sending us your son, by giving him for us to, to die on a cross for our sins in our place to be risen to new life so that we might be able to share in that life. And you hold out to us the offer of an entirely new heart to be made new creations, to be born again. And so God, I just wanna pray now for us, Lord, and for anyone in the room who maybe that's like a revelation for, I pray that you would be doing a work in them right now, Lord, causing them to open up their hearts to you, to come to the end of themselves and realize, I just can't do it. I don't have enough. I am not good enough. I cannot earn enough. But if I come to Jesus, he will make me new. So minister to our hearts now, Holy Spirit, do the work that you have already planned and purposed to do here this morning through this time as we respond. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.